Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. In recent years, the fabric of our public discourse has frayed, with civility often the casualty in the crossfire of heated political and social debates. Disillusioned by the toxic political environment she found while working at the Department of Education, Alexandra Hudson left government to devote her time to studying the seemingly forgotten art of civility. Hudson has since published her first book, Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. She also explores the human condition through stories from the past in her weekly newsletter, Civic Renaissance, and her lecture series, Storytelling and the Human Condition. Hudson joins me to talk about her book, The Difference Between Civility and Politeness, and the Power of Storytelling. Alexandra Hudson, welcome to the show. Preet, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you for having me. You're so civil. <laughs> I noticed uh, right right from the outset. Depends on the day. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, first question, basically. So, so why this book? Why this issue? Why this topic? I couldn't not write this book, Preet. My mother is called Judy the Manners Lady. And while I was writing this book, I actually discovered that there are no fewer than four women who are internationally renowned experts on manners and etiquette named Judy. My mother is one of them. And so my mother is obviously my favorite of these Judiths in the courtesy biz and raised me and my brothers to, you know, mind our P's and Q's. And I always questioned what she taught me. I, I, you know, I'm constitutionally allergic to authority. I hate rules. I hate being told what to do, but I generally followed them because she said they would lead to success in work and school and life. And she was right until I found myself in federal government. <laughs> I was there 2017 to 2018, and it was this environment of anti-human flourishing. It was absent utterly of the kind of basic necessities of, of life, let alone thriving and, and, and flourishing. And uh, I saw these two extremes. On one hand, there were people who had sharp elbows, people who were overtly hostile and bellicose. And on the other hand, there were people who were polished and poised and polite. They would smile and flatter at me one moment and then stab me and others in the back the next. And that that's the second contingent really puzzled me because my mother had said manners mattered because they were outward expressions of our inward character. And yet here I was surrounded by people who are well-mannered but ruthless 
and cruel. And so this this experience galvanized me to write this book, uh, which is about the most important question of our day. How do we flourish across deep difference? And it also clarified for me a core argument of the book is that there's an, an essential distinction between civility and politeness. Well, you you anticipated my question. I, I should also just say for the record, in defense of the federal government where I worked for a long time, <laughs> I don't know the oh particular boy, oh boy. office building <laughs> or or group of folks that you worked with, but but I had a quite, <laughs> quite a different experience. So I just want to stand up for uh, my fellow members of the, of the federal government who are at neither extreme of what you're describing. But, you know, everyone has different experiences. No, and I don't want to, this is a theme, a recurring theme in my book. I don't want to paint any vocation, any geography, any period in history, or any locale with a broad brush. Like there are yeah. always exceptions and the human condition is the human condition. Like The human nature does not change. And so this problem is a timeless one. And it, it emerges from the human person, a part of the human personality that we all share. And so I, I want to affirm exactly what you said. I, I knew good people in government as well. Okay. But this, it was just, nice, it was just dominantly. Nice save, Alexander. <laughs> Dominantly, yeah. So that distinction you, you make is an important one. I want you to have an opportunity to explain it further. What is the difference between the concept of civility and the practice of politeness? Politeness, I realized, is external. It's etiquette. It's technique. It's it's manners. It's surface level stuff, conduct norms, whereas civility is something deeper. It's a disposition of the heart, a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are worthy of a bare minimum of respect by virtue of our shared moral status as members of the human community. And that crucially, sometimes actually respecting others, sometimes actually loving others requires being impolite. It requires suspending the rules of propriety and etiquette in order to have an uncomfortable conversation in order to love someone well and and tell a hard truth or even have a robust debate that that sometimes that's what that's what actually loving and respecting someone requires. I love etymology. The story of our language and our words is is throughout my book and it's often very illuminating. And that's definitely the case here in this instance. So people often conflate civility with politeness, politeness with civility. They, you know, either they 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 hearken back to a golden age of harmony and comity, and they say, we just need more civility and politeness in public life. And another, another contingent that is very vocal today, they say, no, civility and politeness is part of the problem. It's the tool of the patriarchy, the powerful, uh, white supremacists, people in positions of power to keep the powerless silent and oppressed. And we need less civility and politeness in public life. But but both these contingents miss this essential distinction and that the etymology uh, supports that the etymology of politeness is polare, the Latin word that means to smooth or to polish. And that's what politeness does. It's surface level and it papers over difference, sweeps it under the rug, as opposed to giving us the tools to grapple with difference head on. The etymology of civility is kiwitas, which is the etymological root of our words citizen, uh, citizenship, city, and civilization. And that's what that's what civility is. It's the duties, the conduct, the the habits befitting a citizen in the city that especially in a democracy like our own requires having difficult conversations about competing visions of the good, engaging in robust debate. Debate is the lifeblood of a democracy. Yeah. So, so you, you used a term I was about to mention. Um, you said habit. Because there are people who would say that habits of speech and habits of conduct, saying please, saying thank you, engaging in etiquette, although that sounds like at surface level, those are the kinds of habits that cause people to have good character and have integrity and to to approach, as you said, 
with their heart oriented towards civility. Is there some truth in that or are those empty gestures of politeness? So it's a great question that gets to the the crux of the relationship between civility and politeness. I think at its best, those right actions, like so this is like orthodoxy and orthopraxy, like right belief, orthodoxy, and forming orthopraxy right action. So at, at its best, the disposition of civility, the, the proper orientation of, of actually loving, actually respecting our fellow citizens, that's where right action will flow from, ideally. But unfortunately, too often today, we're content with just the surface level action, just going through the motions, just doing doing and saying the right things. And we're we insufficiently care about about cultivating true respect, authentic, authentic respect and, and love for others. So I think that we should instead focus more on on getting getting the heart, the orientation, the disposition right. You're right that there is this link between action and and conduct. In fact, one of my favorite stories from literature and history is a is a, a short story called The Happy Hypocrite by by Max Beerborn, an English writer. It gets to this idea that that how we act uh, can produce moral transformation, inner transformation, uh, but it's not a perfect correlation. You mentioned the human condition, and I think you suggested that it it just it is what it is. And you quote from various people in your book including for, from Augustine and you write that the raw stuff of humanity is defined by self-love first and affection for others second. Do you believe that or are you just quoting someone else? It's a good question. It, I'd say both. I am, I am paraphrasing a lot of thoughtful people who, who have come before me. And that is also the conclusion that my study of human nature and the human condition and the human historical record has led me to, that self-love is like gravity. It is like the default aspect of human nature. And that is why this thing called friendship, this thing called community, this thing called society is never a foregone conclusion. The moment we put this thing called democracy, civilization itself, the moment we put it on autopilot and assume that it will exist in perpetuity without our daily cultivated acts of the will and habits and effort, that's the beginning of of the end. Um, and I, I learned this by this inductive study of this genre of civility books across history and across culture where thoughtful people observed human nature and said, what works when it comes to doing this thing called life together across difference well? And what doesn't work? And time and time again, people came to this idea of civility, as I, I define and explore it throughout my book, of restraint of the self, restraint of, of our immediate desires for the sake of friendship, for the sake of flourishing and, and becoming our best selves and, and for the sake of, you know, increased chances of survival as a species, that this is the stuff of, of the good life, this thing called community, but it is fragile, it is precarious, it is not a foregone conclusion. And it takes the daily effort of every one of us to see democracy and, and, and our flourishing uh, sustained. So you're talking about self-love. What, what about on those days when I wake up and I feel self-loathing? <laughs> yeah. How, how does that fit into Augustine's framework? He was full of self-loathing. He was... Well, he, I want to talk about it as a pragmatic matter. So, so the issue of civility comes up all the time on the podcast and otherwise in the context of politics. And people feel very strongly about their candidates whether you're in favor of Biden or against Biden or in favor of Trump or against Trump or the senators in your state or whoever, the, whoever it may be. And as I said in the intro, dialogue has gotten coarse, debate has gotten certainly very impolite and uncivil. Based on your research and studying and writing, 
What advice do you have for people on the ground in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces, as they talk about politics and care about it in the way that they do? My main piece of advice is to talk about politics less. It's kind of counterintuitive, but in order to save our democracy, save our save our public square, we actually have to relegate it to its proper place. I argue in the final chapter of my book, it's called On Misplaced Meaning and Forgiveness, that as these traditional touchstones of meaning in modern life, and, and, and but also across human history, things like friendship, family, faith, they have been on the decline in recent decades. And too often people have relocated their ultimate source of identity, their meaning in political issues. They've made an idol, a religion out of politics. And that is, and there are three symptoms of this that I see. And and as a result, this is bad for our souls and bad for democracy. But several symptoms of this misplaced meaning that I see are the fact that previously apolitical venues now have a political dimension. You know, what sports teams you root for, where you live, where you send your kids to school, where you grocery shop, where you get your newspapers. It feels like politics has invaded every aspect of our lives. And that is atypical and not good for our souls, not good for democracy. We're overdoing democracy and undermining it as a result. Another symptom of this misplaced meaning that I see is the way in which people can go from zero to 60, you know, just, you know, happy to rage like you've never seen before at the at the broaching of one issue that is really dear to them that they feel is being treated with insufficient reverence. Yeah. And that issue is often being cut off on the highway. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. It could be yeah, that's a great point. You know that that um, you know something small is like kindling on on the fire of our souls. Like we're just the, the, the frustration builds and builds, and then it's kind of this like kicking the cat. And you, have to, you have to be aware. You just have to be aware. Of that. I, I had a colleague once, and I asked her about driving, and, and she said something like, "I don't drive." And I said, "Why don't you drive?" And she just said, matter of factly, because I have road rage. <laughs> Well, know thyself, right? That's what Socrates says is the beginning of wisdom. If that's not a happy, happy place for her soul, then bless her, then good for her. So on the one hand, you say we shouldn't make necessarily, I don't know that everybody will agree with this, but we shouldn't make politics as sort of the center of our being and our, and our focus. But even if it's somewhat part of your focus, what's the way at the Thanksgiving table or in other contexts between family and friends, if you are talking about politics, how to talk about it. So this was actually the third, you know, point I was going to get to is um, that that because I think we've made politics matter too much in our lives, that another sad thing I've seen time and time again is the end of lifelong family relationships, friendships, people cutting one another off based on who they vote for, their position on XYZ public issue. And that to me is a symptom, as Plato would say, of disordered loves. We have let, you know, we've let things that are not as important become the most important thing to us. And, they, and we've let that displace um, really beautiful, central things to the level of happiness and joy in our life, like friendship, like family relationships. And we've essentialized other people and degraded them by reducing them to one aspect of who, of who they are, their, their, you know, who they voted for, their view on one issue. And we have to, I think, in order to do public life better and life together better, we have to have 
other like recover a love of things that are non-political, non-controversial in nature. So in order to talk better with your uncle at the dinner table about, you know, COVID or Donald Trump, maybe start about, you know, a shared love first. Like if if you must talk about those things, and again, my general ethos and and recommendation is to not. <laughs> uh, but if you must talk about like talk about your kids first. Talk about um, you know, something joy-filled and beautiful, like establish that trust and connection first, because that's kind of the problem of where we're at today. We have no level of trust. We have no level of basic affection for our fellow citizens across difference. And that's doing a disservice for how we're talking about the hard issues and how we're talking about the difference. You draw from a very wide array of folks and thoughtful people, as you mentioned already, and to sort of give some sense of the spectrum I want to mention and ask you quickly about two before I let you go. One, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who I spoke about with a guest a few weeks ago, and we focused almost exclusively in the podcast on his unbelievably important, impactful seminal work, Letter from Birmingham Jail. Yes. Which you also quote from, what's the lesson of civility when it comes to protest and and the movement that Martin Luther King promoted and advocated for? Civil disobedience. I had the privilege of speaking just last week at the Alabama Supreme Court about these ideas just right next door to Dr. King's church on Dexter Avenue, where he also preached and and worked through these ideas, and just a stone's throw from where Rosa Parks was kicked off the bus for and subsequently arrested for for uh, failing to sit at the back of the bus. And so I was speaking, as you might imagine, to uh, you know, it was a very illustrious uh, group of educators, of of, of jurists and, and lawyers, predominantly you know white males. And I spoke about protest. I spoke about uh, you know the, the civil disobedience as a duty of citizenship. I have a whole chapter in my book dedicated to civil disobedience, that sometimes the duty of citizenship requires speaking truth to power, calling out the hypocrisy of an unjust status quo that that Rosa Parks, um, you know, she broke a specific law, specific Jim Crow era law, but but her conduct was in accordance to with uh, what, what Martha, Martin Luther King Jr. might refer to as the, the eternal immortal law. Like she broke a bad law um, for, for the sake of a higher principle and, and, and upholding the rule of law and the eternal law. And, and that we have that obligation to do so as well. And so Dr. King is very central to, to my um, theory of civility as a, as a duty of citizenship and why we have an obligation to speak truth and to take action t- sometimes, even when it's costly, even when it's uncomfortable, but doing so in ways that still is respectful of the dignity and personhood of others. The imago dei, that this notion of man being created in God's image, that was central to Dr. King's theory of uh, of personhood and his, and his whole philosophy of, of nonviolent uh, civil disobedience, that that informed um, his conduct, that like it, it meant it compelled him to take action, but it also took certain action off the table at the same time. For example, he knew that he could never degrade the personhood of another through violence, through ad hominem attack, through destroying their property. That, that was dehumanizing, and that would be contradictory and undermine his entire project to begin with. So Dr. King is central and a, and a hero of civility in many ways throughout my book. Thank you so much for, uh, for that question. <laughs> well, I'm going to now mention, <laughs> at, at, in, in some different spectrum, 
uh, and in a different category of person, uh, you you also draw from the work of Larry David of Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's you know it's a little different. Um, I don't see a lot of parallels there. But w- what is the relevance of Larry David's work to your work? So. I'm a big fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm. So Larry David, the creator of Seinfeld, he's television's favorite curmudgeon. And this is my hot take on Larry David. I call him the foremost defender of civilization today. So Larry David, he calls himself on the show a social assassin. Like he's the person who he's everyone's inner ego and inner id. Like he does and says the things that we think every day, but he actually, you know, he actually goes out of the way and does it. Someone double parks at the at the grocery store. Larry David is the one that's like, excuse me, sir, this is society. Like someone who doesn't someone doesn't someone doesn't return their shopping cart as they should. He's like excuse me, like th- you don't get to do that. Like, like your actions have consequences. And I tell, I tell the story, several, you know, an- anecdotes about Larry David in the context of um, a discussion about why democracy depends on us acting in ways that consider the needs alongside others voluntarily. That if we don't want a state, a government, a bureaucrat micromanaging our everyday interactions, that we need to choose to do so voluntarily. And if we don't, the government has and will do that for us. And so we ought to be grateful sometimes, as, as annoying as they are, to the Larry Davis of the world who offer this sort of check on that, that that kind of thoughtlessness. It's not even, you know, overt malice sometimes. Sometimes we're just thoughtful. You know, we're in a rush. We're too busy to go going from point A to point B and getting through our to-do list to think about returning our card or like whether we've parked across the line or any other of the low-grade aggravations that make life together vexing. But the funny thing about that is, and it, and it goes back to the original distinction that we discussed, is Larry David is usually thought of as being fairly rude and not polite. <laughs> and, and yet, as you posit, he's the defender of civil society. Right. But is he civil? Is he telling a hard truth that we need to hear for for a greater good? Is he actually resp- not patronizing people by, by you know, pushing a hard truth down the road and letting a person's unchecked self-interest hurt other people in the longer term? Is he actually doing society a service? Thanks for working on this subject. I think it's very important in American life, especially now. Uh, Alexandra Hudson, thanks for being on the show. The book is, again, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Preet. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director was David Tadashore. The deputy editor is Celine Rohr. The editorial producer is Noah Azulai. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost.
I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>